0: Hey and welcome to another episode of Some Kinda Colour Podcast and also Happy New Year and Merry Christmas despite the fact that was a while ago but I am sorry for a two month break just life got in the way with the lead up to Christmas and things such as that but this year I intend to be back in full swing with lots of new content and things such as that so with that being said, let's get into today's episode and we are going to be talking about a serial killer who was so full of himself that he appeared on national television during his murderous spree. It is none other than Rodney James Alcala aka the Dating Game Killer. So let's get into it. Rodney Alcala was born on August 23rd in 1943 in San Antonio, Texas to Raul Alcala Bacor and Aunt Marie Gutierrez. In 1951, Alcala's father had decided that he was going to move the family to Mexico and then three years later, he decided he was going to abandon them, which was very nice of him. His mum then decided to move Alcala and his siblings to Los Angeles now. Here, we could have what could be seen as his first traumatic incident in life with his father abandoning the family. Usually, children might blame themselves if a parent is left even though it's got nothing to do with him. Whether or not this is the case with Alcala could be up for debate because he has a bit of a sociopath and would never blame himself for anything. For an 11 year old, this could still be traumatic. If you couple that alongside the fact that he's changing location, he's moving from Mexico, he's 11 years old, he's got his little circle of friends and now he's been whisked away to Los Angeles where he's gonna have to try and make new friends, people who may already have established friend circles etc. Might not be much of a problem with him as he is very charismatic so he probably managed to fit in quite well but still it could be seen as a traumatic incident. Now there's not much else about Alcala's childhood until 1960 when it is known that he joined the army as a service clerk. Now in this job Alcala was responsible for providing clerical cover during silent hours and providing maintenance of office security outside the normal working hours. Now much like other serial killers who were in the army Alcala did not see any action. Just a fun little fad for you. Now, everything was going well for him up until 1964, when at 21 years old, Alcala had what can only be described as a nervous breakdown and he went AWOL. Now, he hitchhiked from Fort Bragg to his mother's house. It was round about this time a military psychiatrist diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder and he was then discharged from the army on medical grounds. Now, What is Antisocial Personality Disorder? Luckily for you I looked into it because I found it very interesting and the more you know the better. Antisocial Personality Disorder is a challenging personality disorder with those who suffer from it having behaviour that is impulsive, irresponsible and often criminal. Someone with Antisocial Personality Disorder will typically be manipulative, deceitful and reckless and they won't care for other people's feelings. Now that is the building blocks of a serial killer in my eyes. Obviously not everyone with it will be a serial killer but it's a fifty-fifty chance. And it's actually considered that most psychopaths have a severe form of antisocial personality disorder. Now it is developed through both genetics and a traumatic childhood. Now as I said earlier his father did leave him which could have been considered as a traumatic incident so this could have been a catalyst towards this disorder. That in genetics, we don't know much about that. Back to Mr Alcala. Now after he was discharged from the army, he went on to go to school and he went to the UCLA School of Fine Arts and he graduated from there and then he went to New York University to study film under Roman Polanski. While there, he did not use the name Rodney Alcala. He used an alias by the name of John Berger. Why did he use an alias? Well, I'll tell you why. Because in 1968, Alcala's first crime was witnessed by a motorist. Now, the motorist seen Alcala luring 8-year-old Tali Shapiro into his Hollywood apartment. The witness then decided to call the police and unfortunately, Tali was found in the apartment and she was raped and beaten with a steel bar. Now, Alcala had managed to escape the police. With this, you can only wonder if a motorist did not see Alcala luring the 8-year-old into his apartment, would have been found alive was Alcala perhaps interrupted in his ongoing murder. Now it is said that when he was murdering Alcala was described as toying with his victims and he often tortured them for hours before killing them. This was doing things such as strangling them and choking them until they lost consciousness, waiting for them to wake back up. It was just a sick human being in general, but we can speculate that the police interrupted Alcala's sick ceremony and that is possibly why he. Left a victim in his apartment that can be linked back to him, which, as a serial killer, isn't very smart. That is why he used the alias John Berger because, in order to avoid charges, Alcala decided to flee the state, and this is when he started going to study at NYU Film School under the alias John Berger. Now, when he was studying there during the summer months, he also got a job at a New Hampshire arts camp for children as a counselor. he used a slightly different alias here giving the name john burger so here we have a person who has absolutely zero empathy for anyone and he is a counselor and in my opinion i would think that this could be linked to his paedophilic nature there's no cases or anything of anything happening there you can only wonder unfortunately and in 1971 alcala was finally added to the fbi's most wanted list now this is after two years of being in New York. So they managed to get away without any repercussions of his crime for two years. Two campers noticed a poster of Alcala in the post office and they decided to alert the camp director who then phoned the police. So Alcala was finally arrested and extradited to California to face the punishment of his actions against Tali Shapiro. Well, That is what should have essentially happened, but unfortunately that isn't actually what happened because Tali Shapiro's parents had relocated to Mexico and refused to let her testify against Alcala. Now with a situation like this I think it could be understandable because it's a bit of a touchy subject, Tali was put through an unspeakable ordeal and over the years that she did not see or hear from uh, Rodney, she's obviously been making a recovery mentally So to be put in the same room as her abuser could be a very traumatic experience for her and it would possibly undo months if not years of hard work. So it's understandable why Tally's parents didn't want her to testify because she might have been getting slightly better but on the other hand it is allowing a sexual predator to get away with it in a sense and it could lead to reoffending. and in this case it unfortunately did. So with the courts unable to convict Alcala of rape and attempted murder the prosecutors were forced to permit Alcala to plead to a lesser charge. Uh, he was paroled after thirty-four well, he was sentenced to jail. And he was paroled after thirty-four months under the indeterminate sentencing programme. This was a really popular programme at the time because it allowed the parole boards to release offenders if they demonstrated evidence of rehabilitation. God knows what he demonstrated that was rehabilitation. But less than two months after being released, he was arrested once again for violating his parole. Alcala had provided marijuana to a 13-year-old girl who claims she was kidnapped. Straight back into it, it seems, with his devious activities. Now again he was jailed and again he served two years and was free again under the indeterminate sentence program. So everything is going well for him because he seems to just be getting out of jail whenever he wants. Now in 1977 Alcala had finally managed to get himself a job as a typesetter for the Los Angeles Times which is slightly weird as his history of being a criminal and sex offender but this was also during their coverage of the Hillside Strangler murders. He was also actually interviewed as a potential suspect of the Hillside Strangler, but he got away with it because he wasn't him. Might be a podcast on him in the future, you never know. It was also during this time that Alcala decided he was going to pursue his side business. that happened to be posing as a professional photographer and offering photo shoots to young women and men for his portfolio. These photos were actually released to the public after he was convicted finally and it was in order to identify if there was any victims but unfortunately most of these people in the photos remain unidentified and it was to see if there was any other victims of Alcala after he was convicted. Now there are two accounts of people talking about Alcala's photography hobby. Now he had a co-worker in the LA Times who recalls Alcala showing off his portfolio and she said I thought it was weird but I was young and I didn't know anything and then she continued to say when I asked him why he took the photos he said their mums asked him to I remember the girls were naked which is slightly weird because why would a mother want nude photos of her daughter and the second account is actually someone who was photographed by Alcala in 1979 and she stated he said he was a professional so in my mind I was being a model for him portfolio included and i quote spread after spread of naked teenage boys most of the photos were sexually explicit and most of the subjects remain unidentified so he's using photography as a tool to be a sexual predator by saying he's a professional model and then taking explicit photos of people uh, i did actually the the photos released had a look through and a lot of them do look really young there's no explicit photos released to the public which is good There's not much said about his crimes in this time but we do have where he got his moniker from and that was when Alcala appeared on the US television show The Dating Game. He decided to go on a dating show midway through his murder spree. So host Jim Lang introduced him as a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the darkroom at the age of 13. Fully developed and between takes you might find him skydiving or motorcycling. All of which are false because A his father abandoned him, oh my god, he might be a photographer but he also probably didn't skydiver motorcycling so he has created this fake persona to possibly try and attempt the bachelor that he was trying to win a date with because he obviously think that's how life works. Now fellow bachelor on the show had described Alcala as a strange guy with bizarre opinions. Alcala actually went on to win the show and he won a date with The Bachelorette Cheryl Bradshaw. She actually refused to go on a date with him and said that she found him creepy. There's a theory that this was a massive hit to his ego because serial killers don't take rejection well and criminal profiler Pat Brown noted that Alcala killed three women following this rejection. So he was obviously seeking revenge for the to his ego which is absolutely ridiculous. Now, after his time on television, the downfall of Alcala actually starts to begin because on the twentieth of June 1979, twelve year old Robin Samo from Huntington Beach, California, disappeared somewhere between the beach and her ballet class. Twelve days later her decomposing body was found in the foothills of LA. Now when police were investigating into her death, they interviewed Samo's friends who were with her at the beach and her friends told the police a stranger had approached them and asked if he could take their photographs. Now a composite sketch was developed with the description given by her friends and it was then shown to the public and none other than Alcala's parole officer saw the sketch and knew straight away it was Alcala. So the detectives had decided to start searching Alcala's mother's house and when there they found a receipt for a storage locker in Seattle so they decided to go and check that out and when in the storage locker, they found a pair of earrings belonging to Samo, O'Cala was once again arrested and this time he was held without bail. In 1980, it was the first trial of O'Cala, and he was tried, convicted and sentenced to death for the murder of Robin Samo. However, it is never simple and this trial was overturned by the California Supreme Court because jurors had been improperly informed of his previous sexual crimes second trial was then set up and it was identical to the first with the omission of his previous sex crimes once again he was found guilty and sentenced to death however once again it was nullified and this time it was by a ninth circuit court of appeals on the grounds that a witness was not allowed to support alcala's contention that the park ranger who found the body had been hypnotized by police investigators because that's what police investigators do they hypnotize the people who find bodies. Now there wasn't much else in the trial because it took ages to get this sorted and it wasn't until 2003 that even more victims of Alcala would be discovered and this was because the Orange County investigators found that Alcala's DNA sampled under a new state law which he objected matched semen found at the rape murder scenes of two women in LA and then uh, they went back to storage locker and found a pair of earrings that matched the DNA of these victims. And then in 2004, there was more DNA matches that linked Alcala to another four murders. First off, there was the murder of 18-year-old Jill Barcombe, who was found rolled up like a ball in an LA ravine in 1977. She was originally thought to be the victim of the Hillside Strangler, which is ironic because they thought Alcala was also the Hillside Strangler. Second, there was Georgia Wickstead who was 27 years old and was found bludgeoned to death in her Malibu apartment in 1977 there was then 31 year old Charlotte Lamb who was found raped strangled and left in a laundry room of an El Segundo apartment in 1978 and then finally was Jill Perunta who was 21 years old when she was killed in her Burbank apartment in 1979. All of the bodies were found posed in carefully chosen positions and another set of earrings was found in his storage locker that matched to the DNA of Charlotte Lamb. So this is when his other murders started to come through when the DNA matching started coming in. Now as I said there was a massive amount of time between the second and third trial but Alcala managed to keep himself busy in that time because he wrote a self-published book, You the Jury. And in this book, he claimed his innocence and suggested a different suspect to the murders. So he managed to keep himself busy by writing a book that was claiming his innocence. And he also filed two lawsuits against the California penal system for a slip and fall incident. And the fact that the jail was refusing to provide him with a low fat diet. Because when you're in jail, you really need to watch your figure. Now, his third trial began well the motions for his third trial began because with the additional victims being found prosecutors entered a motion to join the Samsung murders with the four newly discovered victims now alcala's attorneys contested this motion but in 2006 the california supreme court ruled in the prosecutor's favor in february 2010 alcala finally went to trial for the murder of five women it is about time now in this trial is very interesting because Alcala elected to be his own attorney much like Ted Bundy did. Uh, You can only think that maybe he wants to be as big as Ted Bundy because obviously Ted Bundy was a media sensation with what he did. So he decided to be his own attorney and for five hours the jury had to listen to his rambling. Now when he was being his own attorney and himself he used different voices for the attorney. He used a, a slightly lower voice and he would address himself as Mr Alcala so essentially he was talking to himself which I think could potentially be a way of saying he had lost his mind and was trying to plead insanity by doing this you don't know it's obviously failed because he still got sentenced but he was obviously trying now when he was doing his own testimony he stated that when Robin Samoa was being kidnapped he was applying for a job as a photographer at Knott's Berry Farm and he also decided to show the jury a clip from him in the dating game. Now, the reason he'd done this was to try and prove that the earrings that were found in his locker in Seattle were in fact his and did not belong to Robin Samoa. This didn't work out very well for him because a fellow bachelor on the show Jed Mills argued that at the time of filming it wasn't socially acceptable for men to wear earrings in public so he definitely would have noticed if Alcala was wearing earrings during filming. That failed, completely. And with regards to the other four women that he supposedly killed, killed, all Alcala could say is that he could not remember killing any of them. As part of his closing statement, he played a song by Arlo Guthrie called Alice's Restaurant, a song where the protagonist tells a psychiatrist that he wants to kill. I actually listened to all 18 minutes of this song when I was researching him at this bit. It was a very long song and it's very comedic, you could say. You can give it a listen if you want, but I think it was just 1-18 minutes to listen to a song. And it doesn't make sense as to why he would use this because the song's essentially about someone who commits a crime and then he gets sent to a psychiatrist and he tells the psychiatrist he wants to kill his friend. Moving on with the case... Now with less than two days deliberation, the jury had convicted him on all five counts of murder. There was also a surprise witness that took to the stand during the case and it was Tally Shapiro, his first known victim. So Shapiro finally got to face her abuser and she also got the joy of seeing him convicted for the crimes that he did. Now during the case there was only one defence witness and it was psychiatrist Richard Rapport who testified that Alcala's borderline personality disorder could explain why he had no memory of the murders. The prosecutors argued that Alcala was a sexual predator and he was well aware of what he did and he didn't care. Which I fully agree with. And finally, in March 2010, Alcala was sentenced to death. This time it stuck. Fingers crossed. As said earlier, after the conviction, the Huntington Beach and the NYCPD released 120 of the photographs Alcala took of numerous people to try and help identify the subjects of these photos in an attempt to discover if there were any additional victims. But there was another 900 photos that could not be released due to the fact they were sexually explicit. Now in the first few weeks, 21 women came forward to identify themselves as models and six families identified a loved one who went missing and were never found. Now, there was never a connection with the photos and code cases until 2013 when a family member recognised Christine Thornton, whose body was found in Wyoming in 1982. But I'll talk about that in a second, because there was also another number of numerous additional charges and convictions that was put against him. But after his conviction in 2010, the New York authorities announced they are no longer pursuing any other charges Because he was convicted. Here are the numerous ones that were found. Now, in New York, there was a charge put against the murder of a TWA flight attendant, Cornelia Crowley, who was 23 years old, and she was found raped and strangled in her Manhattan apartment in 1971. Now, this is the time he was in New York, which links up. There was also Ellen Jane Hover, who was 23 years old and was the daughter of the owner of a popular Hollywood nightclub, Seros, and she was the goddaughter of Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. Her remains were found buried in the grounds of Rockefeller Estate in Winchester County. And it wasn't until June 2012 when Alcala was extradited to New York where he pleaded not guilty at first, but by December 2012 he changed his plea to guilty on both cases stating that he wanted to return to California to appeal his death penalty conviction. On January 7th, 2013, the judge sentenced an additional 25 years to life on Alcala for the crimes that he committed here. There's more because in Washington state, in 2010, Seattle police named Alcala a person of interest in the unsolved murders of 13-year-old Antoinette Whitaker in July 1977 and 17-year-old Joyce Grant in February 1978. This is Seattle and his storage locker was in Seattle, which could put him in the area at these times, so he could have potentially murdered these people. Unfortunately, there was never any conviction for these cases. There was also charges in San Francisco because in March 2011, investigators in Marin County, California, which is north of San Francisco, stated that they were confident Alcala was responsible for the 1977 murder of 19-year-old Pamela Jean Lamson. Now Pamela disappeared after taking a trip to Fisherman's Wharf after a stranger said he would take photos of her. Seems very similar to a certain person's MO. Her battered and naked body was found in Marin County near a hiking trail. Now unfortunately there were no fingerprints or DNA to link to Alcala but the police claim there is sufficient evidence to convince them that Alcala was responsible. And I definitely think that he was responsible because this was his MO and this is what he did Do He said, oh, let me take your picture. He would take your pictures and then, unfortunately, he would murder you. There's one final charge and that was the one I mentioned earlier because in Wyoming, Christine Ruth Thornton, 28-year-old, was discovered in 1977 and her body was later found in Sweetwater County, Wyoming in 1982. So that was five years without being found. But it gets worse because her body would not be identified until 2015 when DNA was given from a family member in order to sample it and identify her. Now Alcala does admit to taking photographs of her but he does not admit to murdering of her and unfortunately she was approximately six months pregnant at the time and this was the first victim that was ever linked and to this day only linked to Alcala's photos. They didn't get to charge him in this because at the time Alcala was 73 years old and he was reportedly too ill to make the journey to Wyoming to stand trial. And to this day, he is still in California State Prison, appealing for his death sentence. So, he's still in prison, he still hasn't received his death sentence. One can only hope that it will be sometime in the future. That's everything on Rodney Alcala. Just some final thoughts. He believed his good looks could get him anywhere, and he didn't really take into account rejection, which is possibly why... went on to murder and it is especially disturbing to think that his final number of victims could actually be more than what is stated because there's so many unidentified people in those photos that's everything on Rodney calla i hope you enjoyed this episode if you did feel free to follow my facebook page or my instagram both are some kind of killer um going to be a lot more interactive on them this year so feel free to drop comments. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter which is some kind of captoire. I'm also going to be a lot more active on that and just in general I'm going to be a lot more active because obviously I started this last year and I've only done a few episodes and obviously I didn't do anything for a couple of months but as I said life gets in the way. But this year I'll hopefully be doing something else that is a little bit more exciting because with Christmas being I managed to get the last meal cookbook of criminals. So as well as cereal colours, I also enjoy cooking. I'm going to be trying to cook some of the last meals of cereal colours and I will post those photos on Facebook and Instagram. If you're interested in that, let me know. You never know, I could maybe do a podcast while I'm doing that, which would be really complicated because I really focus when I'm cooking. I think it's something a little bit interesting to do. Uh, Some of the recipes actually look really good. There's a lot of ice cream I should say the recipe is like the author of the the book. She didn't actually do the full recipe. She's just essentially focused on one aspect. So I'm still arguing with myself whether or not to just cook that or cook the full meal, which could be interesting. But we'll see what happens when I do my first one and there'll be plenty of notice as to when that's been done. That is everything. Um, Thanks for listening. And as always, have a great day. Bye.